Brendan and Savannah got married young. Brendan was an academic pursuing a career as a college professor, and Savannah was fully supportive of him. Just a couple years into their marriage, they got pregnant, had their first child, and that's when trouble started to show up. Now, Brendan had always worked long hours, and, and now Savannah really needed him to be home, but he refused to curb his hours. They fought a lot, uh, but, but soon found themselves pregnant with their second child. One day when Savannah was doing the laundry, she uh, was emptying the pockets of one of Brendan's pairs of pants, found a note from a young woman in one of his classes that said, I really miss you. <laughs> Highly alarmed, she confronted Brendan that evening, and he eventually confessed that, yes, he was having an affair and had, in fact, had a few different affairs during their time together. Savannah was devastated. She told me that she didn't brush her teeth for three weeks. She didn't know what to do. And uh, one morning as she was praying, she asked God what, what she should do. And she, she really felt like God was telling her to stay in the marriage. And that if she did that, that God would really change Brendan and restore their marriage. And that's exactly what happened. She, she stayed. Uh, Brendan agreed to go to counseling where he worked through a number of things and, and was probably converted. Probably became a Christian for the first time, though he'd been a, a church member. And it took, it took time, a lot of time. But eventually his heart truly did change and his commitment to his wife changed. And now 20 years later and three more kids later, uh, she trusts him in pretty much any and every situation. The book of Hosea is about broken trust and betrayal. But it's also about God's love that can see us through the most unspeakable pain and allow us to find forgiveness at the end of the day. Now, the plot of Hosea has been argued about for centuries by interpreters because it's a little ambiguous what exactly happens in, the, in this relationship and in, in the story. Um, there's questions like, who exactly was the father of some of these children? When did Gomer leave? What happened to the different members of the family that are, that are kind of open-ended, not super obvious? But this is what I think is the best reconstruction of the plot of the book. Okay, as we saw these last two weeks, uh, Hosea marries Gomer. Uh, they have a child together, and then she has two more children uh, that are not Hosea's. And then she leaves the house entirely. And goes off uh, with the other men who wine and dine her, buy her fine jewelry, take her to the hottest nightclubs, until at some point the fun runs out. And she finds herself working for her keep with one of these men. And then even in the worst situation, this man puts her up and sells her into slavery. This is where we find Gomer, and this is where we pick up the story in Hosea chapter 3. So if you are able, please stand uh, for this reading of God's Word. We're going to read the whole chapter. Uh, it's a short chapter, the shortest chapter in Hosea, so you'll be fine. 
And the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So, I will, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Now, this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. There are a lot of metaphors in the Bible for God. God is said to be a, a ruler. He is like, he is a king. He's a shepherd. He's a warrior. He's a rock. He's a father. He's a strong tower. He is, he is all of those things in some ways. But the book of Hosea, the, the most, the dominant metaphor in this book is that of husband. God is a husband. In fact, the book of Hosea speaks more vividly about this idea of God as husband than any other book in the Old Testament. And God is shown as a husband who is pursuing a wife, which is anyone and everyone who believes in him and trusts in him, his people. Uh, at my wedding, Rachel and I had a, someone sing an old worship song uh, called Come as a Bridegroom. And the, the words go like this. Come as a bridegroom for your bride. Come and take me to your side. I surrender, Lord, to your arms open wide. Won't you come in the glory of a king as I worship you and sing? You alone are worthy. Take your bride, Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know that sometimes Reformed people uh, sort of... It, get bent out of shape with uh, certain worship songs that are overly emotional and romantic. I remember Mark Driscoll just bashing on worship songs that treat God like a boyfriend. And yet, the Bible is not ashamed to talk about God as a husband, a loving husband. Isaiah 54 says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Jeremiah 31 says, On the day when I took Israel by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant they broke, though I was their husband. Ezekiel has some fairly graphic descriptions of how God pursues his betrothed, his fiancée, his bride. And then in Hosea 2, the chapter right before this, uh, God says, I will betroth you to, you, you to me forever. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, which is the false god of the, of the pagans. Now, why? Why does God picture himself as a husband? And I think the reason is because he is a personal God. And maybe that's the best metaphor for us as a spouse to understand how personal God is. God is not some far-off ruler, 
right, who sort of has a benevolent love for his people. You know, you think of King George in the movie, uh, musical Hamilton, right, where he says, you're my favorite subject to the, uh, coloni- the colonists in America, my sweet submissive subject. So don't throw away this thing we had because when push comes to shove, I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. He's not like that, is he? God is, the real God doesn't just have submissive subjects. He has a beloved. He has a wife. He's a personal God who sees you and knows you intimately and loves you in a more intimate way than anyone ever can. Now, pretty much, pretty much every married couple here, unless you grew up in a culture that had arranged marriages, you, you were drawn to your spouse for some specific, maybe individual reasons, right? Maybe it was the spouse, uh, maybe how smart that person was, or how funny, or good-looking, or some combination of those things that made you fall in love with them. But the thing about God is, it's not that we were so attractive, that he chose us. It's not that we were so strong or good. In fact, Deuteronomy 7 says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. We talked about this last week, that God fell in love with us because, not because of us, but because of he is a loving God. That's who he is. He can't help but for it to flow out of him. And he wants to shower us with love, even when we don't deserve it. Now, what does this mean practically, that God is a husband? Well, for one thing, it it means if you're single, that you have someone to love you. You can depend on God's love as you would a spouse, even more so, because he'll never let you down. Um, it's, it's really interesting in the book of Genesis when Hagar uh, has Ishmael, right? And she's essentially a single mother. And, and Sarah sends her away, even though it was her idea for, it, for Hagar to, to have a child. Sends her off into the wilderness where she's probably going to die. God comes to her and to her son and, and loves her and cares for her and takes care of her. Even if you're married, knowing that God is a loving husband to you means that you can rely on him to get all of your needs met. That means your spouse doesn't have the burden of having to meet all your needs because no spouse can do that. Only God truly can do that. And it also means practically that if you're in a bad marriage, that God can sustain you. Because guess what? God is a husband in a bad marriage. Hosea 3, he shows Hosea, his wife having left him, run off. Probably in that culture, made, made quite a fool of him. But he is called and then determined to go and to find her, to seek her out and bring her back. But here's the thing. She's not at the end of her affairs, is she? She's really kind of right in the thick of it. There's no sign that she is repentant. 
that she is trying to get back, that she's wanting to, Hosea to come after her. There's no sign of that at all. In fact, if, as, you, as you understand the metaphor of God with Israel, yeah, she's happy to be away. Uh, she's so lost in her sin and her lust that she seems hopeless. But, and we feel bad for Hosea, right? Because he's the faithful one. He's, he's the one who's been hurt over and over again. And he doesn't deserve that. But what happens when you realize that this is how you treat God? Oh, ouch. See, God is the constantly faithful one in our relationship. We are the runaway bride, right? We run from him to the first thing that we think will give us what we need and gives us the pleasure that God is somehow not giving us. We're like Eve in the garden, right? Oh, yeah, you've, you've given me the fruit of every tree except one, but I really want that one. But this marriage is a potentially fantastic one for us, but for God, hmm, it's not a great marriage. Now, we need to address something here that maybe you've thought about if you've read this book or as we've been studying it. And it's the question of, does the book of Hosea require you to stay with an adulterous spouse? In other words, do you have to be like Hosea if you find yourself in similar shoes to him? And the answer is no, but maybe, okay? Certainly the Bible says that if your spouse commits adultery that you can pursue a divorce, right? There are, there are two real biblical reasons and for a biblical divorce, and this is one of them. But, uh, and the adulterous spouse has, in essence, broken the covenant that was made between the two and so the innocent spouse is free to leave. But the Bible doesn't say that you have to, right? And like Brendan and Savannah, I've known a number of couples who have weathered an affair and God has restored their marriage, often to a much better place than it was before the adultery happened. Now, having said that, it really only works if the offending spouse is truly repentant, right? But as Hosea shows, it is possible to forgive even that kind of betrayal. Um, sometimes the inevitable and best way forward is divorce, but sometimes the best way forward is to rebuild and restore. This is not relativism. This is, this is wisdom, right? And there's freedom for the innocent spouse to pursue, pursue either path with God's help, with the church's help and guidance. But what the book of Hosea definitely does show is how we ought to be faithful to our marriages through thick and thin, right? As many of us promised on our wedding days, right? In sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow, for better or for worse. Uh, it, it, it seems like in, in recent years there's been a rise of Christian people who have pursued a divorce with no biblical warrant simply for the, for the reason of something like, I need to rediscover who I am. Let me put this delicately. That is a hot, steaming load of garbage. 
right? Marriage is a covenant that should not be entered into lightly and should not be left lightly either. The Bible says that God hates divorce. Why? Well, for one, because marriage and family is the basic building block in society, and society will not be strong if its families and marriages are not strong. But even beyond that, on top of that, God has designed marriage for our good and for our growth and for the good of our children. And when we leave for shallow reasons, the first sign of trouble, we, we really shortcut what God wants to do in us. But the reality is, yeah, marriage is vital, but it is also very hard, as you that have been married for very long know, right? Sometimes we pay a price to stay married, but it's also true that God pays a price uh, to, to stay in and to heal our marriage. In verse 2, Right. Hosea has been, or excuse me, Gomer has been put up on the block to be sold. A- and Gomer comes. You just imagine the scene. Maybe there's bidding that goes on. We don't, we don't know. But he ends up paying 15 shekels of silver and, and a large amount of, of grain, barley, to redeem her from slavery, to, to bring her home. And you got to wonder what Gomer thought when that happened, right? Is, He's just bringing me back so I'll be his slave. Or maybe he, he's, he's out for revenge or spite or to shame me in front of the, my children or, or the people that are watching. But that's not why he does it, is it? As Tim Keller says, Hosea does this because he wants to renew their intimacy. Look at verse 3. He says, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. Notice that last, did you hear that last phrase? So will I also be to you. This is Hosea pledging himself back to Gomer. He's, he's not asking her to do anything that he won't do. I think what he's basically saying is, Listen, we're going to take time to work on our marriage. We're going to rebuild trust and do what it takes to be a loving couple again. Pledge yourself to me. I'll pledge myself back to you. I think if this were modern days, no doubt Jose would say, we're going to go to counseling for as long as it takes. And we're going to do the work we need to do. Can you imagine how hard that must have been for Hosea? think probably some of you can some of you that have been betrayed by the person that you love the most and then had to do the hard work of forgiveness it's hard it costs you a lot Hosea had cost him right not only does he lose economic standing but he also loses uh, probably social standing loses face certainly in the honor shame culture in, in which he lived in that ancient Near East setting the men, the men of, uh, of that time would have expected him to stone his wife for her offenses, not to, not to be weak and let her come back. Pays a price. And the question for us, though, is if, if, if Hosea is a picture of God, how does God pay a price for us? He pays a price on the cross. 
was on the cross that Jesus died to buy us back from our slavery to sin and death. The, the New Testament talks about Jesus being, paying a ransom, being the ransom to, uh, to win for the souls of the many, the souls of his people. And the last words he spoke right before he died tell us everything, right? He says, tetelestai, which means it is finished or paid in full. Everything necessary to redeem us and restore us to God was paid for us by Christ on the cross. And in Ephesians 5, Paul says that not only did Jesus die for us, but even now he is working tirelessly to sanctify us. Paul says that he is washing his bride, cleansing her, getting her ready for her wedding day. And that's, that's what the Christian life is, Right? God cleansing us, sanctifying us, making us more holy, more fit for our perfect groom for whom we will be united to forever in the kingdom to come. See, God's love is not just a one-time thing. It is a continual labor of love for him. Hosea loved Gomer so much that he even provided for her when, when she was far away. He even provided for her when she didn't realize that he was doing that. Back in chapter 2, there's a really interesting couple of verses where uh, it quotes Gomer as saying, I'll go after my lovers who give me bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And then a couple of verses later, Hosea speaks and he laments. He says, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain the wine and the oil, and who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for Baal, the false god. Gomer was so enthralled with her lifestyle and what she was getting that she had no idea. She didn't realize that it was her husband from afar who was providing the money and the food that she was getting in the fun times. That's God too, isn't it? And when we think we're getting our needs met by our idols and by these other places, it's ultimately still God who gives us our daily bread, who gives us every good and perfect gift that comes from above. We spurn God, yet he still gives us what we need. He doesn't take those away. He still loves us, wants us to return. That ought to make us so happy and thankful that we respond now with love and worship for him. There's a man who uh, took a journey on a train to the countryside, and when he got on the, the train, he sat next to a soldier, a young soldier, and uh, they introduced themselves and exchanged some pleasantries before the, the train started up. And uh, after about 20 or 30 minutes, the man looked over and realized that the soldier was, was really pretty anxious. In fact, he was gripping the, his seat so hard that his knuckles had become white. And he said, are, are you okay? And the soldier said, yeah. I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm nervous and I'm scared. And he said, you know what? Have you never been on a train before? No, it's not that. Uh, when I was a teenager, my, I had a terrible argument falling out with my father and I left home and I vowed I'd never return 
and I, and I, and I went. And, and everywhere I went, I would send my mother a letter letting her know I was okay. And in the last letter, I, I wrote and I told her that I, I was finally ready to come home. And, and I told her that I was going to be on this train on this day. And, but I also said, I don't know if, if dad is ready for me to come home. And so I, I, I asked my mother if, if, you know, talk to dad and if he's ready for me to come home, I want you to put a white flag in the yard. And my parents' house is just, is going to be right up, right next to the, uh, the train station. And so I'll know when we get close, if I see that white flag, whether to get off the train or just keep going. So the man was kind of stunned by the story, and they sat in silence for a while. But as I got closer and closer to the train station, the soldier got more and more aggravated, anxious, until he closed his eyes. He said, I can't look. Would you look for me? And as they rounded the bend, the man saw not one white flag, but hundreds of white flags. God's heart is for his people. And when you've run away from him, don't hesitate to come home. He'll meet you with open arms. He has paid the price to restore your relationship. Don't hold back yourself from him. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that no matter where we go, that as Psalm 23 says, that you're goodness and loving kindness follow us, pursue us all the days of our lives. You are a loving, perfectly faithful husband to us. And Father, we we want to know that love, be shaped by that kind of love, that kind of compassion, that kind of forgiveness. So would you mold us into the kind of people who embody that kind of love for you and for others? Strengthen us in all the commitments that we have made and help us uh, to keep those commitments and to love the people around us well. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.